You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a digital nomad, certified sports nutrition and breathing coach, and master student of gerontology at the University of Southern California. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming program, Energy Reboot for Women 50+. Plus. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would totally appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others find us too. This is a small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women and to help us grow stronger and really get our voice out there and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live studio audience. All of you attending this recording now are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. And part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they are recorded. And you can ask your own questions. If you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but so much more. I'm very honored and excited to have Dr. Bill Laurence back on the show to talk about his clinical trials on bioregular, bioregulator peptides. And if you don't know what a bioregulator is, you will once we are done or go back to the first podcast where we spoke about the effect of peptides on telomeres. And today we're going to take another dive into the bioregulator world, uh, but we're going to shift to the impact that they have on DNA and methylation. And Dr. Laurence will explain that as well. So he used to be a lawyer and a successful businessman. Uh, He's still successful when he does. Um, And he's decided to turn his life and perhaps his fate around with an interest in living longer and better. So he ditched the business world world and delved head first into science and the world of nutrition, coming out with a PhD in nutrition. But it doesn't stop there. Since 1990, his focus has been on slowing and reversing human biological aging. And he's all about optimal aging, which is very different than normal healthy aging. And we'll explain what this means as well a bit later. And now Dr. Laurence is the administrator of two clinical studies in collaboration with the famous Dr. Vladimir Havinson of the St. Petersburg Institute of Bioregulation and Gerontology or Institut Bioregulatie et Gerontologie for Russian speakers. <laughs> and he's going to see if human biological age can indeed be reversed. And, and we learned all about Dr. Hodginson in another episode I covered on bioregulator peptides with Phil Mikens. So I really encourage you all to listen to that episode as well. And I'll, I'll include this in the show notes to make that easy for you. And by the way, Dr. Laurence is chronologically 75 years old, but he doesn't look a day over his telomere age of 35. So he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think you're being kind and exaggerating. If you look close, there's enough wrinkles. Uh, I, I'm 
a bit older than 35. <laughs> well, you certainly look awesome. Awesome. And you you are living proof of what you preach and what you research. So I'm really curious to find out all about this. And, um, and I'm going to take a deep dive today to listen to your presentation of all these results that you've been finding so far with your clinical trials, looking into DNA and methylation and the power of peptides, which you started four years ago, and you've got two more years still to go. So without further ado, please everyone meet Dr. Bill Laurence. Welcome. Well, Zora, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, I'm very excited about the work that uh, I'm doing. But to put it in context, I'm the messenger, actually. Professor Cavinson and the people at the, you know, the folks at the St. Petersburg Institute, they're the ones that deserve all the credit. Professor Cavinson was the one that basically developed, you know, the original peptides and has expanded them through, you know, research and development and so forth. I'm just the guy that came along and suggested to Professor Cavinson uh, why don't we do an American clinical study first with the telomeres? Because the Professor Cavinson had published studies in the early 2000s with regard to the ability to activate the telomeres enzyme that would be linked, of course, with longer, healthier lives through additional cell replication. But my role in this is really just the messenger, in a sense, or the you know the clinical study administrator. So I basically took the concept of the peptides. And I call it a confirmation study for the telomeres. And we won't spend much time on telomeres because we did that exhaustively in the other interview. But we knew, unlike a lot of clinical studies, we already knew what the outcome was going to be with the telomeres and the peptide bioregulators because Professor Cavinson had already shown evidence you know, that they could increase uh, telomeres length or increase the enzyme creating additional uh, telomere length. So we wanted to prove it in America uh, with the idea that an American clinical study would support the Russian study uh, with an American administrator, American labs, American participants. And we've done that. I mean, we have lots and lots of data on the telomeres as we talked about at the last interview. The new area though is this whole DNA methylation and we're going to talk about it in a little bit. I'm going to bring my some slides up in a few minutes. That truly is a clinical study. It's not a confirmation study because there's not been a study of any significance at this point in the world of science to intervene in DNA methylation or change biological age based on DNA methylation, which we'll talk about. So the I'm excited about this because we're plowing, in a sense, new ground so what I'd like to do, I want to share the screen and bring up some PowerPoint slides. As we've spoken, there are two studies. There's the telomere study and the DNA methylation study. And we're going to today focus on the DNA methylation uh, study. For the listeners that, that haven't seen the, the first interview, I'll quickly go through some background. I, I'm assuming, that is my assumption correct that there are listeners to this one that may not have heard the telomere interview? Yes, that's possible because when we post this on podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, people may just randomly choose not knowing, you know, I'll have, a, I'll, you know, I'll write this as part two, uh, but hope people do what they want to do. So if you could, I mean, if it's not too much trouble to, to don't repeat too much, I guess, because if not, if not we'll, we'll, we're maybe short on time if, you, if, you, if it's very long. So you, you make the call. We can always edit things as we need to do. 
Okay, I'll I'll quickly go through the sort of the background, you know, the history, the peptides, what they are, et cetera. And so uh, for those who haven't seen the other one, this is what we call the, the accepted paradigm for aging, of course, is we start off young, we go into middle age, we finally get to an older age. Uh, and this is what pretty much everyone believes is the process. And basically, it is the process at the moment. So there are what we call hallmarks of aging. And sometimes people talk about the seven, sometimes it's nine hallmarks of aging. It's various paradigms that explain or attempt to explain the aging process. My focus as a scientist is on two of those, and that's the telomere shortening and the DNA damage. The reason I focus on those is that in all of the various hallmarks of aging, I think that there is the most science to support telomere and DNA damage as primary aging factors. And more importantly, there are things that we can do to modify or intervene in the biological age process with telomere shortening and DNA damage. Some of these other things that are hallmarks are of aging, there's not much science behind interventions that are successful. We have a lot of hope for some of these things, but we don't really have a lot of science behind it. And there are some of those that simply are very early stage in terms of developing any kind of an intervention. So for instance, with stem cell exhaustion, we do have the ability to replace stem cells and exosomes and so forth, but we really are in the beginning stages of being able to do that. And I myself do stem cell injections, uh, IVs and so forth several times a year, there's not a huge amount of science behind it. What I call it's in the hope category. I also take lots of nutraceuticals. I do basically a keto diet. I do intermittent fasting and so forth, but there's very little science behind all that. It's mostly hope. And so I do it for hope, but with telomere shortening and DNA damage, I have evidence that it is successful. And that's why my focus is there. It's interesting you say that there's not a there's not a lot of science on certain things, you know, certain ingredients and supplements or, or ketogenic diet. And are you saying that there's not just enough sufficient that's showing without a doubt proof versus what you're looking at with telomeres and DNA, or is it just not enough in general and we're just kind of doing all this stuff in hopes that it'll extend our, our lifespan and health span? Yeah, Zora, the problem is that there aren't long-term or longitudinal studies indicating over reasonably long periods of time, 10 years, 15 years, and so forth, that these other uh, interventions of which I engage in will actually reduce the mortality rate. For instance, calorie restriction is one of the primary things that people will talk about in terms of, well, it's science-based. The reality is that it's only science-based in animals, mostly mice. And we're extrapolating that from the mice to humans, which is always risky because many things that are shown successful with mice and, the, and of course the pharmaceutical industry runs into this all the time, doesn't translate over to human beings. And so what I would say is that most of these other things, I mean, things like rapamycin, uh, NAD, you know, the long, long list. In fact, if you can see behind me, you can see my shelves are stacked with, uh, you know, if, if the local vitamin store started running low on inventory, they could come over here and I would replenish it for them. All those things are in the hope with, uh, you know, some suggestive kinds of information that maybe they will be helpful. The difference is 
Professor Kavinson has solid science. He has, you know, the longitudinal studies showing that there is a significant reduction in mortality. And we're going to go through a couple of graphs here in a moment. He's got hard science behind him. I am not aware of any other intervention that has the degree of evidence. You know, my, my attorney self looks for evidence in, in the science part of me looks for data. The peptides have both the evidence and the data supporting they can reduce all-cause mortality, therefore lengthening human life, as well as health span. There is nothing else out there, and I'm constantly, I've been doing this for 30 years, I'm constantly looking for interventions, but most of those interventions other than the peptides are in the hope category. I hope they're helpful. Yeah, there's, well, there's, um, I took a, a summer course with Dr. Walter Longo as part of my uh, coursework for my master's in gerontology. And, and yeah, he's presented a lot of his studies on mice, mice and yeast and, and, and uh, even some studies that have been done with monkeys. But he does, he is, has some trials now, human clinical trials that are running, probably not to the same degree as Dr. Havinson. And he did mention, yeah, this is going to take some some decades, uh, I guess, to get those longitudinal studies uh, proving. But so far, they do look promising. But I guess, you know, in, that, in terms of the category, maybe it's in terms of humans, it's not enough. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Stay tuned because he's, he's all about the, uh, well, not, he's the, the fasting mimicking diet or calorie restriction up to a certain point and protein restriction as well. So We'll see. We'll see what that turns out to be. And, and if we implement later on or not. And then on top of that, I want to know if they are done on females as well, because females react very differently than males in some of these interventions. Yeah, I'm aware of his work. I follow it to some degree and so forth. And when I say I talk about hope, I'm not trying to be negative about those things. I truly hope they work. And I spend energy, time and money, you know, utilizing a lot of those hopeful kinds of interventions. And um, so intermittent fasting is something I do. I have a, a window of eating every day, plus I fast 36 hours once a week. I hope that it works. But the problem is that there is just isn't the science yet. Anyway, this is the, the team at the uh, St. Petersburg Institute with Professor Cavinson in the front. Great people, wonderful people. The Professor Cavinson has been the director since uh, 19, about 1990, formerly in the military. The institute is part of the uh, Pavlov Institute of Physiology, uh, Russian Academy of Science. Professor Cavinson is well known in Europe unknown basically here in the United States. Uh, he's getting a little bit more known, but very minimally uh, here. Uh, he is, um, of course, you know, published many, many things, over 700 scientific publications. He's got lots of patents. He's developed six pharmaceuticals and, and 39 peptide bioregulators. And I think there's actually more than that now that he's, that he's developed. I hope he's going to get a lot more renowned in the West. And I'm really excited to hopefully meet him in the Profound Health Summit, as well as you. You're going to the summit, right? Presenting? Yes. yes. Excellent. So just the fact that he's coming, you know, a little bit more into Europe, that's already a good sign. And, and hopefully more and more people will understand his work. And uh, and is it translated in English? As I know you were doing, when you were looked in the studies, you were using it. Google Translate in the very beginning, but has anyone translated it from Russian into English, uh, some of the studies? 
Oh, yes, yes. When I first started 30 years ago, there was hardly any translation. Google Translator wasn't up and running and so forth. And so over the last 10 years, pretty much any study in any language can be translated now. Many of Professor Cavinson's studies are available in English uh, online. And it's a good translation? Yeah. Oh, very, very good. Yeah, yeah. So what we're looking at is a slide for those people who are listening on the podcast is uh, the places where uh, Dr. Covinson's main studies were conducted. Of course, he's done so many more, but there's, there's a long list here. <laughs> Basically, uh, many well-known institutions, uh, you know, obviously uh, originally in Russia, but also the Ukraine and so forth. So this isn't just, you know, one small group of scientists in St. Petersburg. This is uh, a peptide development uh, program that is wide and many, many people are working on it. Can I ask you a question then? Because I, I seem to hear or understand there's a connection with Kazakhstan as well, because, you know, which would make sense that, you know, it's sort of a Soviet or ex-Soviet sort of research he's done, but it seems to be bioregulators are and, and peptides are quite is it they manufactured in, in Kazakhstan there's some connection there I don't understand yet there is a, a facility there and the and without getting into all the detail there is some of the funding for the new facility that's being built outside of St. Petersburg where they do the manufacturing of the peptides the funding is coming from various places outside of Russia let's just kind of leave it at that some of the development work uh, was done uh, with other countries and so forth, the National Institute of Aging, uh, Italian places, uh, Germany, uh, Spain, and so forth. So this isn't just a, a Russian project, although certainly Professor Cavinson and the Institute are the, the leading uh, agents involved in all of this. This is Professor Cavinson on the right. I think most people will recognize President Putin on the left. President Putin was giving... Professor Cavinson an award called the Freedom Award. This is about two years ago for his 40 some odd years of work supporting the Russian people and the science that he has developed and so forth. And at that time, what uh, Professor Cavinson was saying is that these peptides, he calls them peptide pharmaceuticals. Truly, that's what they are because as you know, they're in the St. Petersburg at the Institute and the clinic that they have where they see patients and so forth. They use the peptides to treat disease and they use the peptides very successfully. So what Professor Cavinson is saying that peptides are basically going to replace, I shouldn't say replace, will be cutting edge pharmaceuticals. Let's put it that way. Now let's go over to peptides. Uh, they're signal molecules, basically, and I'm going to break it down real quick in, in a few moments. They're information carriers. They basically send messages throughout the body to the organs and so forth, basically instructing uh, and causing what we would call cell regulation and cell modification, uh, regeneration at the cellular tissue and then the or organ level. And what Professor Kavinson and his team discovered was that the human beings have what he calls a biological reserve that is basically untapped. And so in the blue, you see here that the average lifespan for most people is somewhere between 75, 80, uh, women probably a few years more than that. It depends also on what part of the world we're talking about. And what Professor Kavinson studies originally in animals 
determine is that there is actually the capacity to add another 35 and 40 years. And if you can control the expression of genes, which is a lot of what the DNA is about that we're going to talk about, and if you can regenerate organs using the peptide bioregulators, that you have the capacity to add 35 or 40 healthy years to your life. And so we're then at that point up into that 100, 110, maybe even 120 area that people keep talking about. All this started basically with Ivan Pavlov. He was a scientist, a Russian scientist in the early 1900s. People associate him with the classical conditioning of the dogs and so forth. His really work was all about human physiology and particularly the digestive system and how all that worked. And it was his work that helped Professor Cavinson, as we'll come to it in a few moments, develop these peptides. Pavlov was aware of very small proteins, and they had a different word for it in Russian, of course, but we would transfer into peptides, and we're going to define that in a moment. Ivan Pavlov won the uh, first Russian Nobel Prize in 1904, as I recall. And Professor Cavinson, when he was a young military officer through the medical corps in the Soviet Union military, what was happening at that time, this is in the early 70s, is that the Russian military, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union military was sending, originally it was submarine personnel out on submarines that had been built in the 50s and 60s, had uh, rather crude nuclear reactors in them. And as they sent these young sailors out, after a few months, they would come back and there were all sorts of mostly thymus, what we call thymus issues, um, damage to their immune system from sitting basically in a small container for months at a time with a nuclear reactor at one end of it and very crude protection at that time. So recognizing that they couldn't have that happening, the uh, military people basically said to a group of young scientists, medical doctors, including Cavinson, you need to figure out how to solve this problem. We can't be sending our submarine people out and having them come back with, we, today we would call it accelerated aging syndrome. And so Professor Cavinson has told me that he had basically unlimited resources at that time. Unfortunately, as we all know, both here in the United States and elsewhere, when the military gets involved in something, then money is a secondary factor. And so Cavinson's team had unlimited resources, he tells me, that they could never duplicate today to figure out what to do about this. And so what they did was they built on Ivan Pavlov's work. What they determined was that if they created, they sourced, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and created very small chains of amino acids, we'll also talk about that in a moment, that could get through the digestive system. And this is where the work of Pavlov was instrumental because he understood that whole digestive process and, and what could pass through and how it passed through and how it was broken down and so forth. Cavinson's group built on Pavlov's work. People have the impression, I think, sometimes that scientists just wake up one day and they have a wonderful solution for something. It isn't the way it works. It works based on standing on the, sh on the shoulders, you might say, of scientists that had come before. You build on earlier research, and that's, of course, what Professor Cavinson did. He built on basically Ivan Pavlov's work. I think the only scientist that I've ever heard of who did not go down that was probably Einstein. I mean, Einstein didn't build on anyone else's work. He came up with his theories totally on his own, as far as I know, but that's the exception. So here we have the submarine corps, and so Professor Cavinson 
what they did was they decided that if they could create these small peptide chains, then it could pass through the digestive system. But they had to figure out, so what is it that's going to be used to regenerate the thymus in this case, and these other organs. And so again, basically partly on Pavlov's work, what they did was they figured out that if they took from an animal tissue from the thymus of, of, a, of an animal and were able to transfer that into a human being, that tissue, the cells in the tissue, would actually support and regenerate a human organ. This seemed seems in a way startling to most people, but actually it's done here in the United States. And I think in Russia, it has been done for 75 years. Where it's done is that people who have thyroid issues, the common medical treatment for a thyroid problem is to source from a pig cells and tissue from the thyroid of a pig and put it into a human being. And that's these days it's called armor is the natural, one of the natural sources. Nature thyroid is another. And then the pharmaceutical industry got involved and created synthetics that will do the same thing. So people for 75 years at least have been taking from an animal tissue, injecting it, putting it in orally injections and so forth into a human being and discovering that it would regenerate the thyroids. Well, the Russians built on the same concept. The first peptide that was used was the thymus in the military. They took that from the thymus of a, about a 12-month-old calf. Then the pineal gland was the second. And presently, they have 21 of what we call the cytomaxes or the natural peptides in capsule form. Same principle. And so what they do is they take from the brain of a 12-month-old calf, they take from the pancreas, they take from the kidney, the liver, cartilage, etc., and they process it very carefully and basically transfer it into a human being, and it regenerates those various organs. And it's what we call organ-specific, that is, if you take from the adrenal gland from a 12-month calf, and transfer it into a human being, even though they're swallowing or have it injected, the cells of that process will end up going directly to the adrenal gland of the human being. It's much like the salmon uh, in Alaska that, uh, you know, will, after years and years, will go back to where they were basically born, you might say. Same principle. So they started using it in the military, and it spread to the other, other uh, services, the regular uh, army military and so forth. And then they used it in the cosmonaut program because they were concerned about what would happen to these cosmonauts when they came back from space. And so they put them on peptides at that point as well with very successful uh, results. They use it, uh, have used it over the years in the uh, Russian gymnastic teams, reducing significantly the injuries that typically would follow from, you know, the training and the competition and so forth. Now we're going to talk about what are they? Basically, they're simply proteins. People know about proteins. People take in proteins from food, from both plants and animals, in order to basically be the fuel for running the body and for allowing the body to function. Well, the difference between peptides and proteins is just a matter of size. They arbitrarily determine, when I say they, sort of the world scientists arbitrarily determine that if you have a chain of these little amino acids, we're going to come to the amino acids in a moment, that at some point we have to differentiate between short chains and long chains. And there's a very important reason why, as I say, that is important. And that is 
the shorter the chain of these peptides or amino acids, the more they easily they pass through the digestive system. And so they simply arbitrarily said, if you have a bunch of amino acids in a chain, and we're going to look at that in a moment, if they're shorter than 50 amino acids, we're going to call them peptide. If they're bigger than or longer than 50 of these amino acids, we're going to call them proteins. So people are familiar with proteins, not so much with peptides, but they're the same thing, just basically a collection of amino acids. And where do the amino acids come from? They come from food. So when you eat meat, when you eat produce, when you eat you know, vegetables and so forth, you're taking in at its smallest aspect, you're taking in these amino acids that are shown here on the left. But when these amino acids are put together in a chain or a bond, then at that point, they can, if they're you know, a large number, they can become a protein. So if you go and you have a hamburger at McDonald's, which hopefully you don't do, what you're doing is taking in amino acids in the form of the uh, meat, and they're in the form of protein because they are long chains of amino acids. So how does this work in terms of these peptides? So the peptides are basically two, three, or four amino acids in length. Uh, they're very small. When you consider that a protein sometimes can be hundreds of amino acids in the chain, these peptides at two, three, and four amino acids are very, very small. As a result, they can pass through intact the digestive process and they can bond with the DNA. And so here we're looking at a pancreas peptide there in the middle. And what happens is that through negative charges and so forth and positive charges, it basically incorporates itself into the DNA. And at that point, it has the ability to therefore modify the cell. And if you modify the cell, you modify the tissue. And if you modify the tissue, you modify the organ and eventually the entire organism. There's lots of different kinds of peptides. In fact, it's almost impossible to walk through a drugstore or a pharmacy without peptides jumping out left and right at you. They're putting them in everything, particularly in the cosmetic world. I think nearly all cosmetics you know, will throw in a peptide, which is simply a couple of little amino acids or you know, a few amino acids, because peptides are sort of the rage at the moment. This episode is sponsored by Primadine, a supplement that if I had to choose only one, it would pretty much be this one. It's because primidine is spermidine. And this has been shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. And it's basically a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. When we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and a lot of waste, and this isn't really great for us. So we need to clean it up. So if you want some research, go to primidine.com and you can see all of it supporting cognitive health and heart health, hormone balancing, and long and strong hair, nails, and eyelashes by using spermidine. So another very important reason why I love primidine in particular so much is that I've never had received ever as much feedback about a product as I have with primidine. Literally several times a week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time it's about improved sleep. So I can honestly say that I can 100% 
be convinced now that primidine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on primadine.com. And that's P-R-I-M-E-A-D-I-N-E.com. Now enjoy the show. Would they also uh, be absorbed into the skin better if they were short, just two or three as opposed to many? Yes, absolutely. Uh, What's interesting is that most of the peptides that you see in the cosmetics and in other products and so forth are synthetic peptides created basically in the lab. One of the things that's significantly different about uh, the peptide bioregulators is that most of those are what we call the natural, natural source from the calves, processed very carefully, filtered very carefully, and you're basically back to sort of the, the thyroid issue the, with art regard to armor and the synthroid, which is the uh, pharmaceutical uh, synthetic. So there are lots of peptides out there. In fact, actually, it's, what's interesting is the Russian COVID vaccine is basically made up of peptides. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's called Sputnik, I, I believe, as I remember. Maybe this, you can answer this later if it's not a, the time, but when you're thinking, when I'm thinking about peptides and skin, there's a peptide bioregulator that I think there's the cartilage one that would affect, would that one affect the skin better than say taking something topically because, you know, our skin, hair and nails are all proteins, right? So I'd imagine, I don't know if it's, you know, this is a funny thing because I, my physiology of aging class, I talked to my professor was talking about how sometimes it's ridiculous to be eating cartilage and expect to make cartilage. He says the body just doesn't work like that. And, and um, we always tend to do this and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I'm wondering with the peptide, because it's a bioregulator, maybe it, it, it behaves differently than than anything else, you know, he, he, like, he, he, I think his example was the biggest example was um, taking um, calcium. Like you just don't take calcium to, and expect your bones to build more, you know, to be calcified even more. So he challenged me a little bit on that. And I was wondering, you know, maybe it's not in all the cases. And what are your thoughts in terms of cartilage peptide bioregulators in the skin? Zora, I, I don't have an answer for that because it's not something I've looked into. I use the cartilage peptide, Sigamir, for restoration of cartilage. Professor Cavinson has a published clinical study showing not overwhelming, but a significant increase, maybe a, a semi-significant increase in cartilage levels as a result of using the cartilage peptide. And, and that's sort of a first. There is, to my knowledge, at least not in the published literature, there is nothing out there that shows with some real science behind it, a clinical study, that you can increase cartilage. Now, there are several ways of doing so that it hasn't made their way into the clinical studies. But in terms of the connection with the skin, I'm not knowledgeable enough to be able to really make any comment about that. I I don't know. Uh, In the clinical studies, we're so focused on internal biological age and organs and so forth that I just don't get into the cosmetic part of it. It's interesting. There are, as you probably know, Zora, there is a line of St. Petersburg Institute cosmetics called Youth Gems. Are you familiar with those? Uh, Phil Phil Mikens has introduced them to us. But I'm just not the knowledgeable person to connect the dots between cartilage and uh, skin status. That's okay. Do my own experiment. (laughs) I'm taking the cartilage as well. This is what caught my eye. This is published in the early 2000s, 
and uh, I saw the translated portion of this. Actually, there was one other study about telomeres that really caught my eye first, but this really grabbed me when I first came across it, uh, I think probably oh, eight or nine years ago. That is basically, here's the science. Uh, and I have a graph that I'll show you in a little bit that kind of summarizes this, but basically using two peptides, the pineal gland and the thymus peptide, they were able to dramatically reduce all-cause mortality. And as a result, as the uh, clinical studies uh, subject matter says, prolong human life. I had started 30 years ago down this road of attempting to lengthen my life. As I, I think I shared in, the, in that first interview that I do not, I'm not blessed with longevity in my family history. In fact, the opposite is quite the, the situation in that the males in my family line die basically in their 50s and 60s. And you're the first in your line, I think, to break that chain, right? That is correct, yes. Uh, my father died uh, at 65. My uncles in their 50s, uh, grandparents, the men anyway, in their 50s, mid-50s. I have three siblings, all younger than me, who died in the last four years. Three of them have died, all of them in their early 60s. So we just don't have longevity. And it was actually the death of my father 40, almost 40 years ago that caused me to change the direction of my life and stop doing what I was doing in terms of law and entrepreneurial things and so forth. Because I realized that instead of trying to stack up another million or $5 million from what I was doing at that time, what good is that going to do me if I've only got eight or 10 more years to live. And so that's what prompted me to basically close down the entrepreneurial uh, side of what I was doing in 30 years ago, PhD and so forth and so forth. But it was this study that basically convinced me that there's real science behind what these Russians are doing and I need to become involved in it. So here's a summary of the study. And we're gonna come back to this later because it's really important. When I said earlier, Zora, that the only science that I know of that has is evidence-based science for uh, longevity is the studies by Professor Cavinson using the peptide bioregulators. So let's quickly go through this. Uh, this was a, a combination of several studies. They had two brackets of people, what they called the elderly people here. You can see it in the yellow. These are people who were 60 to 74 years of age, and they were looking at mortality in this study. Uh, to simplify it, let's drop down to uh, where it says the mortality rate in the course of 12 years, uh, the sort of the bottom of that yellow section. So what they were looking, measuring was with an intervention of one or two peptides, and we'll come to that in a moment, how many people made it 12 years? That is how many of them were still alive at the end of 12 years for this group of people 60 to 74. So the control polyvitamins that you see in the middle group is the people who were not using the peptides, just taking their normal vitamins and doing their you know, normal lives and so forth. And at the end of the 12 years, where you see the 44.1%, that's the number of people that's the number of people who died over that 12-year period of time. 44% of them died, which would be normal for that age bracket. If we go over to the next column to the right, using just one peptide, the pineal gland peptide, the uh, mortality rate dropped in half to 22%. Now, I don't know, Zora, of anything out there 
that has any clinical science behind it that drops the mortality rate in half. And if, and if you or your, or your listeners are aware of something that can do that other than these peptides, I'd certainly like to know because I would be you know, very happy to be involved in it. And this is a very impressive number. And I, I think I, I, I missed it. How many people were in this study? This is a combination of several studies. Basically, it was about, I think, total among all of this, because you see there's the 12-year study, then, the, then there's another one at the bottom, six-year study. I think about a little over 300 people, as I recall, two, 279 or something like that in that area. Let's take a look at the, at the older group here, the old people, since that's my group now. In this category, the what they call old people, as you know, Zora, sometimes the Russians aren't the most diplomatic folks. We would never call them old people. They and, would get an F in my class. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, anyway, that's the way it is. This group of people, uh, the age was 75 to 89. The Again, the, the control group, basically 82% of these people died during that period of time, which would be normal given the age of these people. It was a a six-year study because of their age. And in this case, they used two peptides. They used the pineal gland peptide, and then they added the thymus peptide for the immune system. And we'll look at, we'll just focus on the two over here. That's the far right box. In this situation, the control group not using peptides, basically 82% of those people, 81.8 died. Again, normal for that age. If you were the you, people using two peptides, the mortality rate dropped to 33%. I mean, that, oh, that is just funny. jaw-dropping stunning. Incredible. Yeah, truly. And I'll repeat myself. If there is something else out there with science behind it that will reduce mortality and therefore prolong life, I would certainly like to know about it. And I've been doing this work for 30 years. And I think if it was something out there, I would know about it at this point. And, and these people were, uh, what kind of a lifestyle were they living? They didn't change their diet or at all? Or where were they living more or less? The only thing that they did was add the peptides. Nothing else changed. No, no diet changes, no lifestyle changes. They just continued with the, what they were, their normal life. It's, if I remember, if I recall, Phil Mikens was telling me that some of these studies, I don't know if it's this one or another one of Dr. Havinson's, and he was giving them to people who are basically, I don't know, in the oil fields or coal mines or something in Siberia, where they're obviously not having, they're pretty rough conditions. Uh, that's, and, and so if you have even that against you and you're still having success and, and a great rate, that, that's, that's impressive because when I talk to people about peptides and, you know, I'm always saying sounds like a miracle, but you know, it's always good to get your lifestyle and, and diet and check too. don't just ignore that. But when I, I can't deny sometimes, you know, if these studies are showing that people are really, you know, drinking their vodka and living in the brutal winter and they're still seeing great effects. That's to me, it's, it's mind blowing. It truly is. It truly is. Um, and we're going to go to that morbidity study, uh, just a bar chart basically showing the same results uh, in a different format here. Uh, but the point is, uh, incredible reduction in mortality. And all they did was take these peptides, those two peptides. And here's the interesting thing, Zora. In the 12-year study, they only used the peptides for the first three years. Yes, this is, yeah. And then this is how many years after? 
nine, nine years later, they basically, you know, surveyed the people that were in the study and determined how many of them had lived, how many of them had died. But the peptides were only used during the first three years of that 12-year study. That's incredible. And they were taking them monthly, I mean, at like the same dosage that you would say it's not like, or, or were they rotating or taking them once every several months or every day? Do you know? No, they weren't taking them every day. As I recall, they were taking them uh, once a month for, I think the normal protocol was uh, two capsules a day for 10 days each month. Okay. So similar protocol to what we do today. Similar to what the Russians do. I I have a different protocol for the clinical studies, um, much more intensive uh, and aggressive than uh, what the Russians do. Because what the Russians are doing, what Professor Kavinson's doing in the clinic is treating disease. And and so as you probably know, he'll start off with a more intense program, depending on the disease and the stage that it's at and so forth for a month or two. And then they will basically move into that more refined two capsules a day for 10 days each month kind of thing. And even then after a while, they'll go every three months and then maybe every six months. And so it really just depends on the patient and, and what disease they're dealing with. So here we go on on the morbidity that you were referring to. These are people up in uh, Gazprom, up in Siberia, very adverse (laughs) environments and so forth. So what they were looking at here was, it's a big study. It's 11,000 employees of uh, Gazprom. And they received six different peptides, as it shows here, the brain, blood vessel, the respiratory, the liver, cartilage, so forth. So they were taking the thymus and the pineal as well? I don't think they were taking the pineal, but they were taking the the thymus peptide. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So they had 11,000 people in the uh, peptide group, 3,000 in the uh, non-peptide group. And they were looking at days absent from work due to sickness. Um, And they ran the study for a year. And the results were, at the end of the year, respiratory diseases dropped 2.7 times lower than the control group. Total morbidity, in other words, sickness of all types and so forth, dropped 2.3 times less than the control group with those six different peptides. And for a large company, for the individual, this is important, but for a large company, when you can reduce the sick time in this kind of a magnitude, it is a huge increase in productivity, huge increase in the economies of money and so forth. Again, there's nothing out there that I'm aware of that people can take as easily as some capsules and drop their morbidity or sickness levels, anything near this. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. This is basically to show the power of these peptides in a different environment, in in this case, in the vision environment, retinal functions. As probably everybody knows, one of the most difficult diseases to deal with are the retina issues, macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, glaucoma, et cetera, et cetera. We have a series of, these are clinical studies that were done. Actually, I call them, they're, they're clinical studies, but they're basically one patient at a time showing a before and after result w- with particular patients for d- these various diseases. 
So what we have on the left, this is a diabetic retinoplasty. On the left, we have the patient before any peptide intervention. As you can imagine, where you see the green, that means that they have some vision there. Yellow is less vision. When you get into the black and the red, that means basically either almost no vision or the black is no vision at all in those areas. So this person would have pretty significantly impaired vision on the left. After a couple of years of treatment, this is the result on the right. And I don't know the peptide dosage levels and so forth at this point without digging back into the information because this is, was not a published clinical studies. These are reports from the clinic. Uh, but you can see huge increase in the green, significant decrease in the black and the red. And then we move over here to retinitis pigmentosa. Same thing, left uh, side is before treatment, lots of black. On the right, significant reduction in the black, increase in the green. I have two boys, teenagers, who were diagnosed, I guess, let me think, almost eight years ago, two brothers in the same family, of course, both of them diagnosed uh, within a year of each other with retinitis pigmentosa. They were, I think at that point, about 12 and maybe 16. Um, it runs, you know, it's a genetic uh, defect and it, it runs through families. So they were looking at the prospect of probably by their 20s being blind and for the rest of their life. We put them on a peptide protocol. And I just received about a month ago, uh, I might even have it in the slide. Uh, we'll see. Just received their annual reports a month ago. Basically, there's been no progression of the disease uh, for either of these boys in the last seven years. That's amazing. So they, their quality of life is significantly improved, I imagine, as well. They see better. Well, uh, no, I wouldn't say they can see better. They didn't lose. In other words, they, they were originally diagnosed and they had you know pretty decent vision. Their, their quality of life had not been impaired at the time that they were originally diagnosed, but it was from a, a standard eye exam when they were young, the parents had taken them in. The uh, ophthalmologist had noticed something, looked into it further, a lot more investigation, basically. And they knew, I guess, some family history as well and said, I'm sorry, the boys both have been diagnosed, not, not at the same time, but over the course of year, both of your boys have RP. That's the bottom line. But they were highly functional at that point because they were young. The problem was that it's a progressive disease. Anyone with RP is going to eventually lose their eyesight. Okay. So this slide that we're seeing here with the black, a lot of black is not the boys. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Okay. I, yeah, sorry I should have been that. clear. No, these are, are these are patients at the Russian Institute. No, I, just as an aside, I have firsthand experience with these two teenage boys. And in the course of the last seven years or so, there's been no progression of the disease. They are continuing to have a full life. They're driving, they're busy going to college, all the rest of that stuff. And the, the interesting thing is we don't know if we're not willing to experiment in a sense by stopping. So they're on the same protocol. We've had them on all these seven, oh, six or seven years, whatever it is. What's the protocol? Uh, well, the protocol is about uh, five different peptides. Of course, the vision peptide, the thymus peptide, the pineal gland. We, we use always the pineal and the thymus peptide as foundational for all, pretty much anything. Well, the blood vessel was also a foundational now. It, of course it is. In almost any disease uh, situation, you're going to use the vent fort or, or the arterial system uh, peptide. In the clinical studies for addressing biological age interventions, we use, uh, of the 21 peptides, 
I would say the average person is using 18 of those over a course of a year. Then I have some of the doctors. We only admit doctors into the clinical studies now as of a year ago, January. Um, they'll have patients. And so we'll, with the doctor, we'll design protocols to treat specific diseases, but that's the doctors. We're just sort of the support for it. I would say the average person treating, let's say, chronic kidney disease will be on six different peptides. But let's go back and get through this thing because I want to get to the data on the DNA. So same thing, macular degeneration. Here in the United States, there's really nothing uh, significant that can be done for these retina diseases, including macular degeneration. There are some getting close to having some treatments that have, have some hope to them. So maybe there'll be something coming down, down the road soon. But basically, they have some drops that they use to slow the progression of macular degeneration. There's been some laser kinds of things, experiments and so forth. But on the whole, a person with macular degeneration in the U.S. doesn't have very many options. So over here on the left, we see the macular degeneration, yellow and black. Over on the right after treatment, very reduced amount of yellow and the black, which means that they have much better eyesight. Glaucoma, same thing, where you see a lot of black little squares on the left, you see far less of those black squares and the yellow and so forth on the right. So bottom line is this, the peptides are so effective that they can basically intervene in retinal diseases. And of course, it, it depends on you know what stage they're at. You know, If a person is in stage, you know, retinitis pigmentosa, I don't know that it's going to do much other than maybe hold it at that level. But the peptides are very effective in treating retinal diseases. Nothing else in the world that I'm aware of will do that. We won't spend much time on this. This is cancer. What they were doing was inducing uh, tumors and seeing if they had given peptides before the inducement, this is in mice, rats, and so forth. If they had given these animals some peptides beforehand, would there be less tumor incidence? And that's what they found. So if we go up here with the epitalamin, which is the natural form of the pineal, the natural extract form of the pineal peptide, they used uh, DMBA as a chemical process, a collection of chemicals that they inject into the little rats uh, that will bring on a tumor. So the control group, uh, not having any preparation with the peptides, 81% of those the tumor in fact took or, or grew. In the peptide group, only 26% of those rats actually developed a tumor. So the peptides were preventive to a large degree under various different uh, scenarios, x-ray radiation, uh, constant lighting, and so forth and so forth. Pretty remarkable. If you look at these last two columns, you'll see that the control group in every instance had much higher tumor incidence, induced tumor, than the peptide group. So very preventive. Now, again, these are animal studies. I don't consider animal studies strong evidence for human studies, but it, at least it's suggestive. Uh, recently, we've been using, uh, I was at a conference where I was using this slide a, a month or so ago, a medical conference. Because of COVID, uh, COVID hits a lot of people in the respiratory system first. And as quickly as I get in peptides for the uh, respiratory system, they go right out the door to a bunch of the doctors in the clinical studies who have been using them very successfully with their COVID uh, patients. Okay, finally, let's get to the epigenetic methylation study. I apologize for the, all the background information, but it's important to understand that in order to sort of understand what these peptides do and how we're using them. 
So the epigenetic methylation study. Epigenetics is a very popular term these days. Basically what it means is it's what is the impact of our lifestyle, what we call our, our behaviors, which would be diet, exercise, smoking, alcoholism, our diet, our stress levels, our, our social relationships, and so forth. How does that all play in impacting biological age? And that's what people are, are terming epigenetics. It's, it's beyond or above the genetic system, the genome. And what's been discovered over the last couple of decades is that we're not just products of our gene system. In fact, there, are, there is the ability to turn on certain genes and turn off certain genes, depending on, you might call it lifestyle, how we live our lives. And so we're now able to track, you might say, for instance, we know that smoking is going to impair longevity. Well, it also turns out that stress will impair longevity. Except- and just to give people an idea, you know, our genes, we can't change as set in stone. The epigenetic is, you know, the, the, we were able to change the genes. We're able to change how they behave. And, and that's when uh, Dr. Lawrence mentions, you know, turning them on and turning them off. So we do have that control. And, and that was huge for me when my, my mom died of breast cancer when she was only 57, I'm 51. So, you know, that when I found out that we actually can change our, our epigenetics, I was, I was thrilled and I'm excited to learn about your, your study this show hopefully even even more information yes uh that's exactly the situation you know i would say 10 years or so ago maybe 15 years or so ago the the thought in the science world as a generalization was that genetics probably control about 50 percent of what happens in our life in terms of our health our longevity and so forth that number keeps being reduced as we become more sophisticated and as the science advances in terms of genetics most scientists think it's sort of more in the area of about 25%, some even less than that. And so as we've seen the epigenetic field grow, the genetic portion of that kind of shrinks because we're finding out that all of these other factors that can turn on and off genes are very powerful. And we're going to see that in the data here uh, in terms of the biological age. And I won't get into the chemistry of it because it's very complex. It's basically a chemical reaction that happens at the cellular level that causes either what we call a hypomethylation or hypermethylation. And we could spend an hour just discussing it, but the whole, what it boils down to, Zora has already indicated, basically methylation can turn on and off genes. Now, the problem is that depending on the makeup of that methylation at what we call CPG sites in the body, which are sites within our cells, depending on what is happening, sometimes the methylation process will turn on genes that are anti-longevity in a sense. They're not helpful for longevity, or they'll turn off genes that are actually helpful for longevity. And no one actually knows why this happens. They can, it's one of those things where we can measure it and we know that it exists, but the science world does not know why it happens. That information will probably come out at some point. 
what we're doing in the DNA methylation is, if you remember back to the telomere study, for those who saw it, we can measure the length of people's telomeres. And then with the peptide bioregulators, we intervene over a couple of years and we lengthen or regrow those telomeres, that kind of a crude way of putting it. We can lengthen those telomeres. And as a result of lengthening those telomeres, there's a lot of science that shows that people with longer telomeres live longer and have less disease. Well, the same type of thing is true. The reason for this slide showing all these clocks is that Dr. Stephen Horvath at, UC, at the UCLA, where I went to law school, he and his team of some 60, 60 scientists worked for years to figure out if they could measure, you might say, an estimate of biological age of all of the important organs. In other words, what they were trying to do is figure out what is the biological age of a human being based on their organs. Well, since there's, a, I think there's 78 different human organs identified at this point, each one of those organs is probably going to have a different, quote, biological age. There isn't going to be just one number for all of them. And so that's what the clock's here. So your heart probably has a different biological age than your liver. And even though they're all in the same system, they're impacted by different things, including diet, trauma, stress, etc. So what Horvath was looking at was figuring out a biological age, and I'm oversimplifying it vastly, figure out a biological age of various components in the body, organs, and then coming up with a composite biological age for the human being that might be different than their chronological age. And from that work at UCLA, uh, UCLA has licensed several labs to conduct the tests. Uh, we call it the Horvath epigenetic clock test and so forth. So we can actually test now and determine, again, it's an oversimplification. We can determine sort of what the biological age is of the human based on an assessment of the individual organs. And we're going to show you that data here in a second. I'm still impressed that we've got 78 different organs. Like, where did they all come from? Yes. So sometimes when I'm explaining it more to a lay audience, I'll say it's sort of like a car. And I sometimes will say that telomeres are like the tread on tires because every time our cells replicate, we lose a little bit of that end cap on the end of the chromosome called a telomere. And if you wear down that tire on the car, eventually you're going to have a blowout. You're going to, the car will not handle correctly. We'll, it will slip and slide and so forth. And you have to put on a new tire. Well, it's easier to put on a new tire than it is to grow telomeres, although in fact, with the peptide bioregulators will do that. But the working components of the car are like the working components of the human. There's all these parts and so forth. And you're trying to say, well, what's the age of the transmission? What's the age of the engine? What's the age of the computer system and so forth? Just like what's the age of the liver, heart, et cetera. Professor Stephen Horvath, in his research, uh, they published a study or an article actually here in MIT. And he basically said that we can figure out your biological age and therefore pretty much kind of figure out how many years you're going to live based on the average age of your organs at this point. And what he found was that if you are eight years or more older biologically, the, all those working components, all the parts of the car, in this case, the, the organs and so forth, if you're eight years or more older than your calendar age, you have just doubled your typical risk of dying from all causes. On the other hand, if you are seven years, you could say younger or slower, 
than your calendar or chronological age, your risk of death is half of that of your same age peers. So we're going to see how this plays out in terms of the studies now. This is a really interesting statement. You know, when you think about you know putting putting numbers on it so clearly and blatantly, I wonder. We know that women once they hit menopause, they have it's like a hockey stick. Suddenly, increase their biological age has been increasing like there's no tomorrow. So the idea is then how you know if we're at such a high risk and. You know, women tend to live longer too. So I'm wondering how does that even possible, but you know, this is where we want to get into how do we slow that down and, and lower our risk, especially women once they hit menopause. I, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of that, but their biological age is somehow it's, it's literally like a hockey stick. It's, it's kind of scary. Yes, I am aware of that. In fact, it's interesting um, because I have a very a keen interest in heart disease because the, all the men, basically in my family line for generations died of heart disease, heart issues, and so forth. It's interesting. Once a woman has gone through menopause within five, well, let me back up. Far more men have heart attacks than women, particularly pre-menopausal. That is a, a lot of men will have heart attacks in their late thirties and forties and so forth, depending on lifestyle and family history and all that stuff. But fewer women do. On the other hand, five years after menopause, women have exactly the same, more or less exactly the same risk profile for heart disease that men do. So there's been a tremendous postmenopausal increase in the risk of heart disease in women. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that you, you, you're on that as well. And so, yeah, so I think, especially if you're, yeah, hit that menopause, you really want to pay attention to what we're, we're going to talk about next and how can we actually, yes, reverse our biological clock. <laughs> yes. So uh, quickly with uh, the epigenetic cancer risk, um, what Dr. Horvath's team discovered that for every one year increase between chronological and epigenetic age, we'll call it that, there was a 6% increased risk of developing cancer within three years and a 17% increase of dying of cancer in the next five years. And so you do not want to be epigenetic wise older, and we're gonna show this in some charts in a moment, than your chronological age. That's an area that you don't wanna be. So one of the focuses of the clinical study is how do we get people who have a older epigenetic age, how do we get them to a younger age? And you're gonna see the data in a moment. Uh, I'm showing that this is basically um, Dr. Horvath's epigenetic clock uh, mortality risk for every year that you are older than your calendar age, the risk of all-cause mortality goes up. And I'm showing this as sort of a, a linear uh, increase, and it's not that. It's, it's not as precise as this, but this illustrates, I think, the idea. So if you're just one year older, then uh, uh, epigenetic wise, your epigenetic age, if you're one year older than your chronological, your all cause mortality is somewhere around 10 or 12 or so, maybe 15% higher than your same age peers whose epigenetic age or biological age is the same. On the other hand, if you go over here to the four, if you're four years older, then we'll call it biological age, although I, I don't like that term, but if your biological age based on the Horvath clock is four years older than your chronological, you have a 50% percent 
all-cause mortality risk greater than your same age peers. And if you get out to eight years where he was talking about, it basically is a 100% increase in your risk at that point compared to your peers. Now, that's the downside. Here's the upside, and that is if your biological age is less than your chronological age, then it's this chart that is applicable. So if your one-year biological age is one year less than your chronological, you have a 7% reduced risk of all-cause mortality. And if we go over to the seven, if you're seven years younger biologically than your chronological age, you have a 50% reduced risk of all-cause mortality compared to your same age peers. So the goal in the clinical study is to get the people from where their baseline is, and we're going to look at the data here in a moment, down to this seven, at least to that seven, where their their reduction is 50% compared to their peers of all-cause mortality risk. Again, it's not as lineal as this, but this is the concept. What Dr. Horvath, a very bright guy, says, it's great that we can measure this. Unfortunately, it's not so helpful because as he actually said, we don't have a pill or an intervention. Well, that's, he doesn't and the rest of the world doesn't, but my preliminary results from the clinical study that I'm going to show you in a moment says, no, we do have a pill. It's called a peptide bioregulator. Russians, uh, Professor Kavinson published, uh, I think this is six years ago. Um, He was aware of this epigenetic uh, work that was going on and so forth. And he had been talking about it in various articles and so forth with regard to the peptide bioregulators and how it would impact the uh, biological age as determined by DNA methylation. So the the Russians were very well aware of it. Professor Kavinson had not been doing any studies, longevity studies, in terms of an intervention. That, That basically was part of my assignment. So... Here's where we started. We had been running the telomere study for several years at this point. And when Professor Kavinson and I decided to start the DNA study, what I did was I took uh, at random nine people who had been in the telomere study for a couple of years. They had to have been in for two years at that point. And of those nine people, we tested them uh, using the DNA test labs. And their results were, for those nine people, that on average, they were 5.42 years younger on their epigenetic or biological age than their chronological age. That's the blue that you see over here on the left. So almost five and a half years younger, which puts them into a a situation where they have a significantly reduced risk of mortality. On the other hand, the small green box over uh, on uh, the right These were people who had not been involved in the telomere study. They were coming brand new into the DNA study, but without the peptide bioregulator experience because they had not been in the telomere study. There were 15 of these people that we tested as determined their baseline. On average, they came in at 1.91 or basically two years older than their chronological age based on their biological age. So people with peptides, of a couple of years, five and a half years younger, people with no peptide experience on average two years older. As we showed in the the chart, the risk charts, if you're two years older, this group on average, they have a 25% increased risk of all-cause mortality. On the other hand, the people in the blue at 5.42, basically we'll call it five years, those people have 
a, as I recall, about a 30, yeah, 35 percent a decrease in mortality, huge difference between these two groups. I want to be in the 35% less than mortality um, group, not in the green group over here. Hi, Jonathan here, the editor helping Zora to produce this helpful guide towards attaining a longer health span with hacking your age. This episode is going to be split into two more parts. Just like with the last Harry Potter movie, there is so much information here that we wanted to respect your time. So there will be a part two to this part two. For simplicity's sake, we'll call it part three and it will come out later in due course, making this near three hour conversation more digestible in roughly two one hour length episodes. Thank you for listening. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.